chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm your host Jeff, Fish. and I'm your other host Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 174th episode of the Not a Cast titled "Once Upon a Time," an analysis of a Storm of Swords brand one and two, in which George R. R. Martin does some Tolkien pastiche before turning to one of the most iconic in-universe stories in the entire series, the story of Quaith. No, wait, wait. <laughs> our favorite The Knight of the Laughing Tree. Yes, the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Yes, Quaith is our favorite character. But no, this one, sadly, so sadly, we're such sad report, is about the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Tolkien pastiche is about, right? This is where George really earns that RR in his name that he stole from J.R.R. <laughs> Tolkien. Just imagine Tolkien's ghost going, all right, you've earned your merit badges. You can keep the RR. <laughs> I love it, yes. He's earned his wings. It says Ronald Raymond, right? Ronald George Ronald Raymond Martin. Well, Ronald Reagan, of course. J.R. Tolkien went to the future and named himself after the most iconic of American presidents. Those were just his he, powers. Man, George, given his political, you know, leanings, would be very embarrassed to have that middle name. I think. True, true. Very That's why he just keeps it as the RR. No further questions. <laughs> no questions necessary, indeed. So, as always, this episode was brought to you by our Dada Small Council. Our Hand of the King, Wolf Manzak, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshoot of Systems, and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Robone, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Sir Jack Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren, the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen, the Steadfast, Master of Pounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Ted's Dent, the Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Petra for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite sin, Herald of Sharon, Bastard, Chromatic, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow, Rainbow Commander of the D's and Gentle Dems, and the Non-Cast, Non-Binary, Not an Army. Hold over the way for T.Y.L., Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Venaris of House Golgarian, the first of name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mr. Svart, the Avort, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Deputy of the Great Game of Thrones, Pushes the Brum, Lady Real Seven Kings, Butter Paints, Make of Drawings, the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgo, Lady Elizabeth, Mrs. of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Hold Up, the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who's Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Lord, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Richard Gary, and Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anne, the Lovely Castellum, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, and Protector of the Tri State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, the Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrants of the South, and the patron of free wheeling bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher of Arendelle, official ice master deliverer, the valiant pungent reindeer king, keeper of ice pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septim Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and the Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, 
Lord Monsef, the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls, Sir Small Paul, guardian of the Stonehaven, defender of Donatar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Ward of the Western Reserve, Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges, and our two newest members of the Small Council. You heard that right, two new members of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lord Joe R. and Lady Christina H. Thank you to all of our not a small counselors and welcome to Lord Joe R and especially to Lady Christina H. Thank you as always to all our counselors, but especially thank you to Joe R and Christina H. We're so happy to have you with us. It's wonderful. So uh, yeah, thank you. I love you all. <laughs> thank you so much. And uh, we normally do a question at this point, but we are going to be soliciting some more questions from our Sworn Sword and Higher Level patrons. As you all know, if you are a $10 Sworn Sword or Higher Level patron, you are welcome to ask us any questions that we are forced at Swordpoint to answer every single week here. But in lieu of that for this week, we just wanted to make an announcement about our latest patron episode. We are pleased to announce that our next patron-only episode for all $5 and above poor fellow patrons will be something we almost did actually last holiday season back in 2020, and that is... We are doing a fracking episode on the Battlestar Galactica <laughs> miniseries that will be available for all $5 about patrons. And I got to admit, Emmett, well, you already know this because I told you this ahead of time when we were texting. But I've watched this miniseries and I'm like, this is amazing. And I was like, I'll just watch, you know, 33 because it's a pretty good episode. I just want to kind of get the feel of what season <laughs> one is like. Uh-huh. Dudes, I'm on episode nine of season one after like three days. Like this is this is kind of a problem at this point that I need to like kind of cut myself off. But I can't because we're on the Tillium episode. And the Tillium episode ends with an amazing song at the end of it. Anyways, yes. So yes, Battlestar Galactica miniseries for all five download patrons towards the end of this month. Yeah, that's going to be great. Battlestar was my show, one of my first big fandoms and story obsessions. And it's it's wonderful to go back to it. I rewatched the miniseries, and honestly, it really mostly holds up. So I'm really excited to talk about it for this month's patron-only episode. And who knows, this might lead to us doing more Battlestar episodes down the line. So get ready. Oh, I'm so So excited. say Let's we all. That. So say we all. So say we all. Okay, sorry. Um, yes, to be dignified about this. Yes, the Battlestar episode is going to be great. We hope you folks enjoy that. And I, it used to be available for free on, on Amazon. It might be available in your region or country, but at least where I am, it was not. I had to purchase it, but it used to be on Amazon free. But It's available on Peacock. You can't watch all of oh, it for nice. free, but the miniseries you can watch for free on Peacock. So if you want to check that out, all you got to do is, is sign up for a free account. So I definitely recommend. Yes. If, yes, you cannot... I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna spoil everything. I'm gonna say about Battlestar right <laughs> at this moment, especially in the episode about a Storm of Swords brand one and two. When we last checked in with Bran Stark, he had departed Winterfell, heading for places unknown in search of the Three-Eyed Crow. Let's find out how Bran Stark is doing in this synopsis of a Storm of Swords brand one and two. The ridge slanted sharply from the earth, a long fold of stone and soil shaped like a claw. Trees clung to its lowest slopes, pines and hawthorn and ash, but higher up the ground was bare, the ridge line stark against the cloudy sky. He could feel the high stone calling him. Up he went, loping easy at first, then faster and higher, his strong legs eating up the incline. Birds burst from the branches overhead as he raced by, clawing and flapping their way into the sky. He could hear the wind sighing up amongst the leaves, the squirrels chittering to one another, even the sound a pine cone made as it tumbled to the forest floor. The smells were a song around him, a song that filled the good green world. At long last, we are with Bran of House Stark, and we start naturally with Bran as he wargs his direwolf Summer. Bran, Summer, runs until he gets up to a crest of a hill in the woods and sees a kite above the sky. He thinks he's a prince of the woods and elsewhere, strong and to be feared above all animals. 
And he sees a pack of wolves, remembering his own pack, the five wolves. No, six wolves, counting the one who stood apart, remembering their similar yet different scents. Shaggy Dog was the nearest angry, but now growing distant. The others he could sense too, except for his sister, who died. These woods belonged to them, the snowy slopes and stony hills, the great green pines and the golden leaf oaks, the rushing streams and blue lakes fringed with fingers of white frost. But his sister had left the wilds to walk in the halls of Man Rock where the other hunters ruled. And once within those halls, it was hard to find the path back. The wolf prince remembered. The winds shift in summer brand, smells and senses fear and blood. He runs over, driven by the smell, and finds the deer down and dying with eight wolves around her, ripping into the stomach of the deer. Summer leaps down into the pack, and all the wolves scatter except the head male and female. One of the smaller wolves tries to attack, but Summer snaps at his leg, and the wolf limps off. That left only the large gray male wolf. The male wolf was old and fearless, and Summer knows that it will be a good fight, and they go to each other, fighting, circling. Mostly the other wolves stay away, except for one who Summer tore, tears the throat out of, tears the throat out of. But at last, the wounded male wolf rolls over on his side and exposes his throat and belly in submission. Summer licks the blood off the old wolf and turns to the prey at hand. Oh, door! The sudden sound made him stop and snarl. The wolves regard him with green and yellow eyes, bright with the last light of day. None of them had heard it. It was a queer wind that blew only in his ears. He buried his jaws in the deer's belly and tore off a mouthful of flesh. Hodor? Hodor? No, he thought. No, I won't. It was a boy's thought, not a dire wolf's. The woods were darkening all about him, until only the shadows of the trees remained in the glow of his cousin's eyes. And through those and behind those eyes, he saw a big man's grinning face in a stone vault whose walls were spotted with nitre. The more rich, warm taste of blood faded on his tug. No, don't. Tone, I want to eat. I want to. I want. But Hodor continues to chant, shaking Bran softly. The giant was trying to be gentle, but, I mean, he was a giant after all, over seven feet tall. Finally, Bran shouts angrily that he's here, and Hodor looks abashed as the wolves, as the wolves fade, and Bran is left in an ancient crumbling watchtower that Bran had named Tumble Down Tower. Jojen is there and tells Bran that he was away for too long, but all Bran wanted to do was eat. Bran cannot live off wolf food alone, but needs real food. Mira is bringing food back soon, but Bran is sick of, but Bran is sick of frog food. He wanted to eat that deer that Summer was eating. Jojen asks if Bran marked the trees, and Bran is angry and embarrassed that, well, he forgot. Jojen was always him telling him to do things when he opened his third eye, and Jojen chides Bran that he always forgets to do the things that he tells them. It was true. He meant to do the things that Jojen asked, but once he was a wolf, they never seemed important. There were always things to see and things to smell, a whole green world to hunt, and he could run. There was nothing better than running, unless it was running after prey. I was a prince, Jojen, he told the older boy. I was the prince of the woods. You are a prince, Jojen reminded him softly. You remember, don't you? Tell me who you are. <sighs> He's Bran, of course, the prince of Winterfell, what remained of Winterfell after it was burned and broken. He's not sure he can be a prince of a place he had never seen again. He'd never see again. Jojen asks who Summer is. Why, he's Bran's direwolf, the Prince of Green. Jojen asks if Bran and Summer are two, and Bran hates that question. They're both two and one. Jojen wanted Bran to warg back to, at Winterfell, but now he was always telling him to come back. Why? Remember that, Bran. Remember yourself, or the wolf will consume you. When you join, it is not enough to run and hunt and howl in Summer's skin. Well, it's enough for Bran, though. He liked being in Summer's skin better than being in his own. Jojen tells him to mark the tree next time. It doesn't matter which one he marks. Bran says, sure, but can he go back now? No. Bran needs to eat as a human. 
Bran's angry at this since Jojen doesn't know what it's like to be a warg. But then Hodor shouts, Ho, door, and runs up to the door. Yup, as Mira comes through. George spends some time reminding us of what Mira looks like. Small, flat-chested, and 16. Mira returned with two trout and six frogs. She asks if anyone's hungry, and Bran sure is, but not for frogs. The Walters Frey said the frogs made teeth go green. He also didn't see their bodies amidst the bodies they found at Winterfell. Wonder if those two boys are ever going to show up again. They will. Anyways, Mira asks if Bran will help her clean the catch, and Bran likes her company. She didn't scare unless it was something Joshin said, or rather what he dreamed, since his dreams always came true. Except that time that Joshin dreamed that Bran was dead. Except maybe Bran was a little dead. They make a frog stew, which wasn't as good as deer, but Bran thought it was all right all the same. He thanks Mira for the food, and then Jojen says they need to move on. Bran could see Mira tense. Have you had a green dream? No, he admitted. Why leave then, his sister demanded. Tumble down towers, a good place for us. No villages near, the woods are full of game, there's fish and frogs in the streams and lakes, and who is ever going to find us here? This is not the place we are meant to be. Well, it's safe, according to Mira. Well, it seems safe. There was a battle at Winterfell, after all. There could be an army that comes through here. Maybe Rob's army, Bran suggests? Well, according to Jojen, Maester Lewin only spoke with the Boltons and the Ironborn. Mira challenges Jojen and says all, he, says all he wants to do is go see the Three-Eyed Crow. But that's a hell of a long way beyond the wall. Jojen wishes that they were eagles or if they had horses. Mira suggests stealing horses, but Jojen doesn't want to be a thief, and he doesn't want people pursuing them. Maybe they could... Buy the horses? Look at us, Mira. A crippled boy with a direwolf, a simple-minded giant, and two Cranog men a thousand leagues from the neck. We will be known, and word will spread. So long as Brad remains dead, he is safe. Alive, he becomes prey for those who want him dead for good and true. Jojen went to the fire to prod the embers with a stick. Somewhere to the north, the three-eyed crow awaits us. Bran has need of a teacher wiser than me. How, Jojen, his sister asked. How? A foot, he answered. A step at a time. Mira says it was a good long journey from Greywater Watch to Winterfell, but this road is way, way longer, and none of them had been beyond the wall. How are they going to find the Three-Eyed Crow in the vast expanse beyond the wall? Perhaps he will find us. <laughs> I'm so glad we have your voice back to do Jojen Reed. <laughs> I mean, if you're listening to our Fever Dream podcast, it's it's you you, you do Joshua York so well, and it's good to have Jojen Reed back. Pretty much the same voice. They're mostly it's, the same voice. <laughs> there's, there's, there's nuances there. There's nuances oh, there. Oh, thank you, you know Jeff. It. You're there's so, so sweet. There's so many nuances there. You're so sweet. Because uh, I do. I hear it every single month, at least once a month or so. Well, if Joshua York is in the chapter. Anyways, a wolf howls before a beer replies, and Jojen asks if it's summer. It's not. Bran scorns Jochen in his mind that he could dream just fine, but couldn't tell a wolf howl from another wolf howl. Why were they always listening to this goddamn Jochen anyways? He wasn't even a prince like Bran was, or as strong as Hodor, or even a good hunter like Mira. Bran suggests stealing the horses and riding to the Umbers. Or maybe they steal a boat and sail down the White Knife to White Harbor and the Manderleys. Hodor responds with a burp and Hodor. He liked Bran's plan, but the reeds weren't going to follow his suggestions, even if they were bannermen to the Starks. Hodor starts saying his name over and over again to enjoy the different ways that it sounds. Bran tells Hodor to head out to the practice with the sword. They had gotten the swords from the Crypts of Winterfell, after all. Bran has Uncle ben Brandon's sword, Hodor had a large piece of iron that was centuries old, and they hear Hodor slashing at a massive wolf's wood tree outside. Jojen, what did you mean about a teacher, Bran asked. You're my teacher. I, I, I know I never marked the tree, but, but I will the next time. My third eye is open like you wanted. So wide open that I fear you may fall through it. 
and live all the rest of your days as wolf of the woods? I won't. I promise. The boy promises. Will the wolf remember? You run with Summer. You hunt with him. Kill with him. But you bend to his will. More than him to yours. Oh, Bran only forgot. He's only nine after all. He's just a kid. He'll get better as he gets older. Floyd the Fool and Aim the Dragonite didn't start as great knights. Jojen says that's wise if the days are getting longer, but the days are not getting longer. It's getting colder. Jojen asks Bran for the stark words, and Bran repeats them feeling cold. Winter is coming. Jojen gave a solemn nod. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth by chains of stone and came to Winterfell to free him. The chains are off you now, yet still you do not fly. Then you teach me. Bran still feared the three-eyed crow who haunted his dreams sometimes, pecking endlessly at the skin between his eyes and telling him to fly. You're a green seer. No, said Jojen, only a boy who dreams. The green seers were more than that. They were wargs as well, as you are, and the greatest of them could wear the skins of any beast that flies or swims or crawls, and could look through the eyes of the weirwoods as well, and see the truth that lies beneath the world. Jojen says the gods gave them all gifts. Mira's a hunter, can breathe mud and fly through trees. Jojen has green dreams. And Bram? He could be so much more than Jojen. But someone has to teach Bram, and Jojen can't, as he doesn't understand Bram's gift. The Kranachman used to know, but they'd forgotten so much, and they didn't know the rest. Mira backs up Jojen, saying they could and they could stay and not trouble anyone and be safe. But if they go to Last Hearth or beyond the wall, they could be taken. Bran is a boy, but he's Ned Stark's son. Rob's heir. They have sworn by earth and water, bronze and iron, ice and fire to follow his command, so the choice is his. Bran asks if they really mean that. They do. Bran tried to think tries to think of Bran tries to think it through like his dad like Big Daddy Ned would. He thinks the Umbers would be loyal in the Karstarks too. They would be safe with either. Fact check maybe half true. They could go to Wyman Manorly or the Kerwins, but Clay Sarum was dead. In fact, all of them could be dead. If they stayed here, hidden down beneath Tumbledown Tower, no one would find them. He would stay alive and crippled. Bran realized he was crying. Stupid baby, he thought to himself. No matter where he went to Carhold or White Harbor or Greywater Watch, he'd be a cripple when he got there. He balled his hands into fists. I want to fly, he told them. Please, take me to the crow. Bran, Mira, Jojen, and Hodor make their way through the wilds of the north where there are no roads and only nature. Large trees loom above them as they progress through valleys. They got lost a time or two, but they only had to wait for night, and then they find the ice dragon up in the sky. The blue star pointing north, as Osha once told Bran. He wonders where Osha got off to, hoping that she was safe in White Harbor with Rickon and Shaggy Dog eating crabs, eels, and fish with Lord Wyman. Or maybe they were at last hearth, staring at a great fire that the Umbers put together. But Bran's life was riding in Hodor's basket and growing cold back there. Mira says she hates going up and down Bran's stupid mountains. And yes, she did love them before. She kind of both hates and loves the mountains. Bran says that it's different to love and hate something. They're opposites, like night and day or ice and fire. If ice can burn, said Jojen in his solemn voice, then love and hate can mate. Mountain or marsh, it makes no matter. The land is one. Thank you, Yoda, man. So wise of you to say something like that. Bran says they could take the King's Road and be at the Wall by now, and they wouldn't be so hungry. They had once eaten trout that Mira caught, or squirrels or hares that Summer brought back, but the mountains had less game to hunt, and Summer sometimes returned empty-handed. But Jojen refuses to return to the roads. They would encounter travelers, and Jojen was stubborn as fuck. So everyone keeps moving slowly north and slowly into the heights. 
and on some days it was rainy or windy or even sleeting. Even on clear days, they felt completely alone. Mira asks if there are people up here, and Bran says there are. Umbers are east of the King's Road, and then there are the mountain clans, bulls in the west, harclays in the hills, knots, littles, norries, and flints in the high places. Bran's great-grandmother on his dad's side was a flint. That was why Bran loved to climb so much, so said Old Nan. Mira comments that there was once a wool who rode with Howland Reed to war. Thea wool or buckets, says Jojen. Bran adds that the wool sigil was three brown buckets. Lord Wool gave homage to Ned once a year, though he wasn't a true Yule, though he wasn't a true lord. He was just the Wool. Jojen Reed stopped to catch his breath. Do you think these mountain folk know we're here? They know, Bran had said. They know, Bran had seen them watching, not with his own eyes, but with summer's sharper ones, the Missoulu. They won't bother us so long as we don't try and make off with one of their goats or horses. Nor did they. Only once they didn't catch only once did they encounter any of the mountain people when a sudden burst of freezing rain sent them looking for shelter. Summer found it for them, sniffing out a shallow cave beneath the gray-green branches of a towering sentinel tree. But when Hodor ducked beneath the stony overhang, Bran saw the orange glow fire farther back and realized that they were not alone. Come in and warm yourself, a man's voice cut up. They're stone enough to keep the rain off all our heads. The man, who Bran figures for a little, offers oat cakes, sausages, and some ale. But he, ne but he never asked for their name and didn't give his. Bran asks if it's far to the wall. It's not too far away. And Bran comments that they'd be faster if, and Mira finishes, if we took the king's robe. The little took out a knife and whittled at a stick. When there was a stalk in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the king's road on name day gown and still go unmolested, and travelers could find fire, bread, and salt, and many an inn and hold fast. But the nights are colder now, and the doors are closed. There are squids in the wolf's wood, and flayed men ride the king's road act asking after strangers. The reeds exchanged a look. Flayed men? said Jojen. The bastard's boy's eye, he was dead, but now he's not. And paying good silver for wolf skins a man hears, and maybe gold for word of a certain other walking dead. He looked at Bran when he said that, and at Summer stretched out beside him. As to that wall, the man went on, it's not a place I'd be going. The old bear took the watch into the haunted woods, and all that come back was his ravens with hardly a message between them. Dark wings, dark words, me mother used to say, but when the birds fly silent, seems to me that's even darker. He poked at the fire with his start. He poked at the fire with his stick. It was different when there was a stalk in Winterfell, but the old wolf's dead, the young one's gone south to play the Game of Thrones, and all that's left us is the ghosts. The wolves will come again, said Jojen solemnly. How would you be knowing that boy? I dreamed it. So badass. I love that line. The man says he dreams about his dead mom, but when he wakes, those dreams don't come true. Yeah, but Jojen's dreams are different, you see. Hodor says, Hodor. They end up spending the night together as the rain falls outside of the cave. No one wants to leave besides Summer, who Bran finally allows to go exploring through the rain and trees. When they wake the next day, they find the little gone, but the man left behind a sausage and oat cakes made of either pine nuts or blackberries. Bran tries every one and promises to repay the littles back a hundredfold for every nut and berry. It's awesome. The trail is easier and Bran almost feels easy. The trail is easier and Bran almost feels nice when the sun comes out. He takes a nap in the basket until Mira wakes him up to show him an eagle in the sky. Bran wonders what it would be like to fly, thinking that the green seers used to take on the skin of a bird and fly. He watches the eagle until it disappears. At that, Bran is disappointed, but Mira reassures Bran that they'll see more. Hodor says, Hodor, and Bran repeats back, Hodor, to him. Jojen comments that Hodor likes hearing his name. This leads Bran to explain that Hodor's real name is actually Walder. Hodor is just a word he says. Yeah, just a word he says. Old Nan was his great-great-grandmother. He wonders if Old Nan is alive or dead. Theon shouldn't have killed her. She didn't hurt anyone. Ever. 
Some people hurt others just because they can, said Jojen. And it wasn't Theon who did the killing of Winterfell, said Mira. Too many of the dead were Iron Men. She shifted her frog spear to her other hand. Remember old Nan's stories, Bran. Remember the way she told them, the sound of her voice. So long as you do that, part of her will always be alive in you. Beautiful. Bran promises to remember, and the party proceeds on in silence for a time until Bran asks the reeds if they know any stories. Well, sure, they know a few. Could they maybe tell him one? Well, with knights, of course. Hodor and Bran like stories involving knights. Ah, uh, well, there are no knights in the neck, unless you count the dead ones in the bogs. Andals, Ironman Freys, and all the types of idiots who wanted to conquer Greywater Watch. And they all died. Bran, unnerved by the Dead Marsh's reference from Lord of the Rings, shivers, but he likes the scary stories. There was one night, said Mira, in the year of the false spring, the night of the laughing tree, they called him. He might have been a Craigman, that one. Or not. Jojen's face was dappled with green shadows. Prince Bran has heard that tale a hundred times, I'm sure. No, said Bran, I haven't, and, and if I have, it doesn't matter. Sometimes Old Nan would tell the same story she told before, but we never minded, if it was a good story at least. Old stories are like old friends, she used to say. You have to visit them from time to time. Love, I, yeah, very quotable. Miras agrees and starts to tell the tale. There was a Krennic man once who grew up hunting, fishing, climbing trees, and learning the magic of the reeds. Bran didn't know this story and asked if the man had green dreams. He did not, but he could do all the Krennic magic things and even make castles appear and disappear. Bran wishes he could do magic too and asks when he meets the, true, the tree knight. Soon, Mira scolds, if Bran would just shut up and listen. So Bran stays quiet for the bowen, and Mira continues saying that the dude knew Krennic men magic, but the Krennic men stayed home rather than travel. But this guy was curious, and he decided to leave the Krennics and go to the Isle of Faces to find the green men. So the man paddled down the green fork, past the twins at night, and paddled onto the Isle of Faces to meet the, to meet the green men. A story for another time, but Howler, I mean the Craddock Ben, stayed at the Isle of the Isle of Faces. And then he paddled from the island and went to the largest castle in the world. Harrenhal, Bran knew at once. It was Harrenhal. Mira smiled. Was it? Beneath its walls, he saw the tents of many colors, bright banners cracking in the wind and knights in smail and plate on barded horses. He smelled roasting meats and heard the sound of laughter and the blare of Harold's trumpets. A great tourney was about to commence, and champions from all over the land had come to contest it. The king himself was there with his son, the Dragon Prince. The White Swords had come to welcome a new brother to their ranks. The Storm Lord was on hand, and the Rose Lord as well. The great line of the, of the rock had quarreled with the king and stayed away, but many of his bannermen and knights attended all the same. The Cragman had never seen such pageantry and knew he might never see the like again. Part of him wanted nothing so much as to be a part of it. Bran knows what that feels like as he wanted to be a knight before he was paralyzed. Mira continues the story talking about how the daughter of the castle was queen of love and beauty with five champions swearing to defend her honor. Four brothers and her uncle, a white knight of the king's guard. Bran asks if she was a fair maid and Mira says, yeah, but there were others who were hotter, like the wife of the dragon prince and her maids who had all the knights come into their yards to tie favors around their lances. Bran complains that this sounds an awful lot like a romance story. He likes knights and monster stories. Sometimes the knights are monsters, Bran. The little Cranachman was the little Cranachman was walking across the field, enjoying the warm spring day, and harming none when he was set upon by three squires. They were none older than fifteen. Yet even so, they were bigger than him, all three. This was their world as they saw it, and he had no right to be there. They snatched away his spear and knocked him to the ground, cursing him for a frog ear. Were they balders? It sounded like something a little Walter Frey might have done. None offered a name, but he marked their faces well so he could revenge himself upon them later. They shoved him down every time as he tried to rise and kicked him when he curled up on the ground. But then they heard a roar. That's my father's man you're kicking, howled the she-wolf. 
Wolf? On four legs or two? Two, said Mira. The she-wolf laid into the squares with a tourney sword, scattering them all. The crankman was bruised and bloodied, so she took him back to her lair to clean his cuts and bind them up with linen. There he met her pack brothers, the wild wolf who led them, the quiet wolf beside him, and the pup who was the youngest of the four. Man, do these people kind of remind you of anyone? Are they sound familiar to anyone else in this story? Eh, probably just my imagination. That night there was a feast, and the wolf girl insists that the crankman attend. So he ate and drank with the wolves, barrow down men, moose, bears, and mermen. Some dragon prince sang a sad song that made the wolf made cry and got laughed at by the youngest wolf. She promptly poured wine over his head. Then there were storm lords and knights of skulls and kisses, a maid with laughing purple eyes, a red snake, the lord of griffins, and a quiet wolf who only spoke to the maid after the wild wolf spoke on his behalf. But then the chronic men spotted the three squire attackers, a squire who served a pitchfork knight, another who served a porcupine knight, and a knight whose two towers on who had two towers on his surcoat. Phrase. The wolf maid pointed them out to her brothers, and the youngest offered to get the crankman a horse and some armor. But the crankman wasn't sure what to do. He did want vengeance, but he was small, and he was scared to make a fool of himself. So the crankman slept by the shore, facing the Isle of Faces, and praying to the old gods of the north and neck. Jojen asked if Bran ever heard the story from his dad. No, he hadn't. Old Nan did the storytelling in their family. Bran asked to hear the rest, and Mira starts to talk about the tourney. But Bran only wants to hear about the jousting. As my prince commands, the daughter of the castle was the queen of love and beauty with four brothers and an uncle to defend her, but all four sons of Harrenhal were defeated on the first day. Their conquerors reigned briefly as champions until they were vanquished in turn. As it happened, the end of the first day saw the porcupine knight win a place among the champions, and on the morning of the second day, the pitchfork knight and the knight of the two towers were victorious as well. But late on the afternoon of the second day, as the shadows grew long, a mystery knight appeared in the lists. Bran knows all about mystery knights. They would show up with their faces all covered, and sometimes they would be famous champions in disguise. Even Aemon the Dragon Knight won attorney as the mystery knight so that he could name his sister Queen of Love and Beauty rather than one of the king's mistresses. Barrison, Barrison the Bold, had also been a mystery knight twice as well. Bran thinks the mystery knight was the little Crannigan, but Beerus says that no one knew. The mystery knight was short and had ill-fitting armor made of bits and pieces. And the sigil? The device upon this shield was a heart tree of the old gods, a white werewood with a laughing red face. Maybe he came from the Isle of Faces, said Bran. Was he green? In old Nan's stories, the guardians had dark green, uh, a dark green skin and leaves instead of hair. Sometimes they had antlers too, but Bran didn't see how the mystery knight could have worn a helmet if he had antlers. I bet the old gods sent him. Mira says, sure, maybe. But then the mystery knight rode to the end of the list where the five champions were living, and he challenged the three squires. Bran decides then that this was definitely the Krennicman. Yeah, probably not. The Krennicman defeats these three tormentors one by one, and the crowds cheer for him as they didn't like those fucking phrase. And look, I don't care, but no more summaries. It's killing me to summarize one of the most best iconic in-universe stories in this entire series. So we read on to the end. When his fallen foes sought to ransom horses and armor, the Knight of the Laughing Tree spoke in a booming voice through his helm, saying, Teach your squire honor, and that shall be ransom enough. Once the, defeated squire, once the defeated knights chastised their squires sharply, their horses and armor were returned. And so the little crackman's prayer was answered. By the green men, or the old gods, or the children of the forest, who can say? It was a good story, Bran decided after thinking about it for a moment or two. Then what happened? Did the knight of the laughing tree win the tourney and marry a princess? No, said Mira. The knight of the great castle. That knight at the great castle, the storm lord and the knight of the skulls and kisses, each swore they would unmask him. And the king himself urged men to challenge him, declaring that the face behind that helm was no friend of his. 
But the next morning, when the heralds blew their trumpets and the king took his seat, only two champions appeared. The Knight of the Laughing Tree had vanished. The king was wroth and even sent his son, the Dragon Prince, to seek the man. But all they ever found was his painted shield hanging abandoned in a tree. It was the Dragon Prince who won that tourney in the end. Oh, Bran thought about the tale a while. Well, that was a good story, but it should have been the three bad knights who heard him, or not their squires. Then the little crankman could have killed them all. That part about the ransoms was stupid, and the mystery knight should have won the tourney, defeating every challenger and named the wolf made the queen of love and beauty. She was, said Mira, but that's a sadder story. Are you certain you never heard this tale before, Bran? asked Jojen. Your lord father never told it to you. Bran shook his head. The day was growing old by then, and the long shadows were creeping down the mountainsides to send black fingers through the pines. If the little crankmen could visit the Isle of Faces, maybe I could too. All the tales agreed that the green men had strange magic powers. Maybe they could help him walk again, even turn him into a knight. They turned the little crankmen into a knight, even if it was only for a day, he thought. A day would be enough. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, brand one and two. Talk about a killer ending. I mean, it's, I admit it, it seems kind of trite to say that I love the Night of the Laughing Tree story in Bran's second chapter, but it's great. What do you think, sir? It's easy to forget about Bran in Storm of Swords, especially relative to how prominent he was in Clash of Kings. He had seven chapters in that book, set out Winterfell, the heart of the unfolding political and military struggles in the North. In this book, he only has four chapters, and the narrative focus has shifted away from Stark turf towards the Riverlands and the territory beyond the Wall. Later in Storm, George will tie Bran's chapters into first John's and then Sam's, but here he's almost totally isolated from the rest of the story. And you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. These chapters feel like a palate cleanser in a lot of ways, leaving me refreshed for the more thorny and complicated chapters to come, from Davos, Daenerys, and so on. The quest narrative, the wistful tone, the nature imagery full of reds and golds, it all brings me back to a younger age when I was first reading stories like this, which is very appropriate given Bran's position as the young fantasy reader in-universe. I know that for a lot of people, this isn't the appeal of A Song of Ice and Fire. They're in it for the more shocking, deconstructionist material, and I get that, but I think George handles this material with equal care and skill. What do you think? I think... In Bran, George embeds powerful pathos, charming anecdotes, and an almost Lord of the Rings-like sense of nature and the world around them. For much of these chapters, I kind of felt like we had transitioned from the hard, gritty fantasy to lighter fare, if you want to say. Something you noted so well just a moment ago. This feels like, I don't know, YA fiction isn't the exact term here, but these chapters feel like chapters I would read to my children, right? Ages four, five and four. And that's great. I, it's great George can interpose Bran with all these adult characters and themes, and I love it. The problem, I think, though, is that we only have four Bran chapters in A Storm of Swords and only three Bran chapters in A Dance with Dragons. I, I, I have no idea if this is a controversial take or not, but I think this is kind of a big mistake on George's part. If Bran is destined to become King of Westeros at the end of the series, we have precious little page space given to the boy. And I don't think... It's enough unless George ramps up the number of brand chapters in The Winds of Winter. And I don't think that's particularly likely. And I know I'm kind of ranting a little bit, but give us more brand, George. Give us the boy. Give us the prince. Give us the goddamn wolf. Yes, give us the wolf. And that's how we start here. Bran's story in Storm of Swords begins the same way as his sister Arya's, racing through the woods, feeling his connection to the natural world. But Arya has only just begun warging into her direwolf, at a distance, and she isn't consciously in control of it. 
Bran opened his third eye at the end of the last book, and is now deliberately skin-changing into Summer. This intentionality, this sense of purpose, changes the tone. Instead of the ambient danger around Arya, we get a sense of peace and serenity. Bran is as one with his environment. That's why George describes the Ridge of Earth as shaped like a claw, like a wolf claw. The land is the wolf, is the king. Everything orbits him. The soil and the stone, the squirrels and the birds. The smells make a song, as George writes, a song that fills the good green world, like the Song of Ice and Fire that we're reading. Bran can now perceive nature as a structure, like a story, into which every individual fits. A feeling of harmony prevails. Everything is in its right place. What is Bran's place? Prince, he thinks. Prince of the Wolfswood. Again, the land is the kingdom, is the king. It's the Fisher King archetype at work. Bran links the natural and man-made, the political and the mystical. He's atop the food chain, atop the hierarchy of Winterfell, atop the whole world from up on his ridge. But as with Danny, power goes hand in hand with loneliness. Summer sees a pack of common wolves below. Not his pack. They're gone. And so is Bran's. Summer's fierce joy gives way to grief when he remembers that Lady is dead. And as he thinks, Ghost was always a silent one who stood apart. Yet even though they were different from each other, they all smelled like pack. Individuals brought together to be more than the sum of their parts. Bran is the living heart of House Stark. His chapters mourn for the time when they were together. The kids and the wolves kind of stand in for each other here. That doesn't mean they're identical. Lady died. Sansa didn't. As Summer thinks about it, this is because Sansa disappeared into the halls of Manrock, where there was no place for the creatures of the woods. Bran has to bridge that gap, and that's not easy. He thinks of himself as the wolf prince, bringing two worlds together, until he smells prey, and then he's all wolf, fighting the pack of lesser wolves and stealing their kill. He even kills one of them. But just as he's about to enjoy his food, he hears Hodor. I love how George paces this. It's so creepy and effective how Summer registers that none of the other wolves heard it. It was a queer wind outside of nature. The next time he hears Hodor, it wakes up Bran, the boy dreaming inside the wolf. No, I won't, he thinks. That's the boy's POV now, not the dire wolves. And the boy doesn't belong to this world. The trees darken to shadows. The wolves fade like Bran's siblings. There's this sickening moment when Bran can see Hodor through the wolves like they're ghosts. If you think, that, think of that pack as a, as a kind of version of Bran's family, then this is a poetic expression of Bran transcending them to become something else, the new god king. The last thing Bran feels before he's forced to wake up and face reality is the taste of blood on his tongue. It's the same thing he tastes at the end of his weirwood trip in A Dance with Dragons. It's the price to be paid for this kind of power. What is ultimately the price to be paid for any kind of power as we see in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think this reintroduction to Bran in the context of blood is really interesting. And I think it's probably the most interesting introduction of Bran as a warrior and in summer. It's clear that Bran is very in touch with his wolf side and that helps make this feel like a dynamic opening scene. Where Arya isn't precisely sure what she's doing and Jon tries to fight and deny what he actually is, Bran is fully in control demonstrating his advanced warging abilities over that of his siblings. And that's kind of a cool beat that draws us back into Bran's story, but I think the thematics here are also pretty cool. I think thematically, this scene is doing something similar as what we saw in Danny's Dragons, breathing fire and growing large, as we saw in her first chapter in A Storm of Swords. Meanwhile, as we'll discover later on, Summer is also hunting for food as Danny's dragons were diving into the ocean to retrieve fish. 
The difference is that the dragons embody Danny's id, as you were saying last week so well, and Danny isn't precisely skin-changing her dragons. She's not living in her three dragons necessarily. It's kind of a different type of connection. There's certainly a, blo- there's certainly a bond, but it's not the direct bond that Bran has with Summer. In Summer's case, he is stealing the kill of the pack of wolves and displaying dominance over the rest of the wolves. That could be read as symbolism of Bran's future place as King of Westeros, dominant over all of the other wolves, aka all of the other Starks. But it's also showing that despite Summer's role as protector of the band, and occasional bringer of food, there's still a violence inherent in Summer. How will this impact Bran going forward? Joja will later warn Bran about staying in Summer too long, noting that the danger is Bran forgetting his human flesh. But I think the danger posed here is that Bran becomes more animal-like, more wolfish, something many fans speculate about John when he likely enters Ghost after his death, and given how long he spends inside of Ghost, may come back much more violent than we left him at the end of A Dance with Dragons. We're going to unpack how all this will affect Bran when it comes to Hodor later in A Storm of Swords and on into A Dance with Dragons. But the real danger is both in Bran disappearing too long into summer and the danger becoming too much like summer in terms of like morality. Moreover, Bran is forging his consciousness with Summers, and it's not clear whose thoughts we're seeing in this opening prologue of sorts. Who is controlling who? Jojen says that Summers is the one who's doing most of the controlling for Bran, but I think it's ultimately a question that Bran will have to answer throughout his story, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, throughout the rest of the series, really. He's going to have to keep going back and forth, and we're kind of seeing that in miniature here. Bran is forced back into his body by his human companions, the Pack of the Prince. And those are the terms by which they define him. Just as Summer's joy turned to grief when he remembered Lady, so Bran's excitement for the world of the wolf turns to bitter resentment at being forced to be himself again. He's back with his mentor, Jojen Reed. George reminds us that he's so solemn and self-serious that old Nan nicknamed him Little Grandfather. He considers it his job to keep Bran in line, preventing him from falling too far into Summer. This makes him different from the other magical mentors we talked about in Clash of Kings, the heralds of the Age of Wonder and Terror. Melisandre eggs Stannis on. Jock and Hagar did the same to Arya before leaving her. Quaithe is so cryptic that it's difficult to say what exactly she's trying to get Danny to do, but she's definitely not restraining Danny like Jojen does Bran. And I think this makes Jojen more responsible than those other characters. He's not in it for power. He's in it to teach Bran the best he possibly can. Now that doesn't mean Bran has to like it. He's aggravated by Jojen's warnings and admonishments, as he thinks Jojen was the one who wanted Bran to open his third eye, and now he keeps pulling him back. And that's because Jojen knows how important it is to balance the man and the wolf, the prince of Winterfell and the prince of the forest. You are two, then? He asks Bran, and Bran replies, two and one. So Jojen tells Bran to mark trees while inside the wolf to prove that the human Bran is still in charge. But Bran always forgets. In part, it's just the sheer intoxication of entering another mind. It's another species, another whole way of looking at the world. But it's also because Bran doesn't want to remember. His time in summer is an escape from his real life, and his real life sucks right now. The setting reflects that. They're in the vault of a ruined watchtower that's been abandoned for millennia. Bran calls it Tumbledown Tower. And doesn't that just sum up Bran's story so far? He took a tumble from a tower, and now the tower has tumbled. Winterfell has fallen. Bran even refers to Winterfell as burned and tumbled, just to make the connection clear. They're in the metaphorical ruins of his childhood. Bran's home is broken, just like his legs. So while he's being kind of a spoiled brat about Jojen's lessons, his frustration is relatable. As he thinks, how can he be prince of a place he might never see again? Politics is abstract for him. 
the world through Summer's eyes is more tangibly real. In both the political and the magical realm, restraint is vital. Bran thinks that there's no point to being a skin changer if he can't wear the skin he likes, but Jojen points out that eating as Summer won't nourish Bran's stomach. Bran thinks, yeah, Jojen doesn't know what he's talking about, he's not a warg. Just as Danny in the last couple weeks dodged Barristan's points by calling his perspective into question, Bran is right that Jojen lacks experience. But Jojen is right that Bran still has to concern himself with the mundane world of mankind, or his presence there was going to shrivel. He's going to shrivel up and die. And Jojen has more on his to-do list than telling Bran about how great power comes with great responsibility. He also wants to move on from Tumbledown Tower. The reader might get frustrated at this point, because it does seem like we already settled this question at the end of Bran's plot in Clash of Kings. They were already talking about going north to the Three-Eyed Grow. I do think it's a little redundant, but this is Bran's hero's journey, and part of the hero's journey is the refusal of the call. Bran has to have the opportunity to turn aside from the path, or his decision to walk that path will feel less meaningful. Bran's duality is reflected in the Reed siblings. Mira wants to stay here. It's peaceful precisely because it's ruined. It's got plenty of food and water. But Jojen wants to move on, despite the danger of being found by their enemies, and despite how long and punishing a trip on foot is going to be. Why? Because Jojen is aware of his own limits. He's not a green seer himself, he admits, just a boy who dreams. His destiny is to start Bran on his path, not finish it for him. The three-eyed crow is the one who can teach Bran to fly. Jojen can't enforce the lessons he teaches, and he's worried Bran is starting to stray. Bran points out that he's still a little kid, not a great wise hero. Aren't these expectations too much? Remember what Marcella said in Clash of Kings. We're children. We're supposed to be childish. But innocence is lost quickly in the Song of Ice and Fire, and Bran can't afford to enjoy his childhood here any more than he could at Winterfell. He has to put aside childish things. He wishes Rob was here to save the day with his army, but he's not. There's no authority left in the North. Only them. Jojen makes Bran repeat his house words. Winter is coming. It means more than literal winter, more even than the White Walkers. It means that every summer child has to grow up eventually. If they stay here, Mira says, they'll be safe. But that's it. Bran's development will stagnate. His potential will go unrealized, like someone who never moves past children's stories. And it has to be his choice, the Reeds tell him. They swore an oath to protect him, but they can't do it all for him. And this is such clean, classical storytelling. All the mystery and world-building focused like a laser through character. Bran knows he can't rely on his father's bannermen any more than he can rely on the Reed siblings. The war has made everything so uncertain, that's what Maester Lewin told him. Neighbor against neighbor, war everywhere. Moreover, none of the bannermen can give him what he wants. The physical freedom Bran experienced at the start of the chapter while working into his wolf. Bran loved to run and climb. Now he can't, and the pain of it still makes him cry. He wants to fly, he says. Take me to the crow. It's so bittersweet because Bran is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Not that there's anything wrong with wanting to use his legs again, but he never will. Bran is setting himself up to be disappointed, as we see in A Dance with Dragons when Bloodraven tells him, you'll never walk again, but you will fly. So even as Bran comes into his power, becomes, you know, arguably the most powerful being on the planet... He's still denied that which he wants most, which is his happy childhood back. Most of us aren't princes, let alone green seers, <laughs> but I think we can all relate to that. Grieving for the past, the person you used to be once upon a time. 
Yeah, and I think like that once upon a time is is so important because we're this we're in the midst of a story and Brands is so much about the hero's call and about the kind of cycle of the, of the hero's journey. And it's it's so important that Brand has to kind of wrestle with the whole hero's call portion of the hero's journey. He has to kind of shrug off childish things and grow up more quickly than anyone else has to. I think our frustration with Bran, the Reeds' frustration with Bran, is that we want him to come into that role much more quickly than he really should. George has stated several times in the past that his idea for a five-year gap was imagined as a way to get Bran through all of the training and boring stuff and get to the good stuff. As he said, Bran was taken by the Children of the Forest in the Green Ceremony, so he could come back to him five years later. That's good. Works for him. I don't think it would have worked for him because I think it actually cheapens Bran's journey. It's important to see Bran's development as it happens rather than catch up with him when he's an all-powerful warg and green seer. Bran has to make the decision to go to the Three-Eyed Crow, and he has to learn from Jojen on the way there. He has to step away from the safety of Tumbletown Tower and face the unknown so as to save the world. It's an incredible burn that Bran bears here. It's kind of fortunate he's so young, so the burn doesn't feel crushing to him. For now, it's it's an adventure, a hope that Bran will walk again. It helps that he's still a child and doesn't realize what's being asked of him. It's sometimes easier not knowing so that one so that one can actually fly. That's the payoff that Jojen is talking about, how Bran is no longer the chained wolf. He will fly in the future and the payoff will be sweet. And the sweetness of the payoff will be found through the journey to get to that payoff. And so they set out into the wild. And as you were saying at the top of the episode, this is the most Tolkien-esque classical high fantasy stuff in the entire series. They could easily be the Fellowship of the Ring here. They're cut off from human civilization. As Bran thinks, there are no roads in these mountain valleys. They're in the domain of nature now, using the stars to navigate rather than anything that might appear on a map. George emphasizes the transition with changing colors, as he often does in Bran's visually driven chapters. We've gone from the autumnal reds and golds near Tumbledown Tower to the dark greens and grays of a land that is always bracing itself for the next winter. And this stands in for Bran's maturation. It's isolated to the point of abstraction, a symbolic space where the major ideas and images of the series dwell. It's like a loop, as Mira says, up and down, up and down. She hates the repetitiveness of it. But wait, Bran says, yesterday you said you loved the mountains. So I do, she responds. I'd only heard of mountains in my father's stories. It's wonderful to see them in person. Bran doesn't get the contradiction. How can you both love and hate something at the same time? That's only confusing to a child, or an adult who can't move past childhood. Most of us eventually learn that opposites come together all the time. Life is the seed of death, which is the seed of the next wave of life. People want freedom. They also want structure. People want intimacy. They also want privacy. People are good. People are bad. If it was easy to separate and sort out these categories, we would have done it by now. Even love and hate, the eternal opponents in the human heart's conflict with itself, can mate, as Jojen puts it. They're two halves of the same face. It's not strange at all for Mira to love the mountains for their novelty, yet hate the actual practice of walking on them. That's just how people work. As Bran grows up and comes into his power, both magical and political, it's vital for him to internalize that interplay between yin and yang. Jojen compares it to ice and fire the title of the story, suggesting that the idea of the self as a vessel for contradictory elements is the central theme of A Song of Ice and Fire. And we see it expressed in characters ranging from Danny to Jamie, Theon, Sandor, Stannis, and so on. The land is one, Jojen says. Everything is one, a baseline principle for a large percentage of human spirituality, philosophy, and even science. It's a holistic understanding of natural and potentially supernatural processes that flow over and through us, 
As everyone has heard, the Force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. Jojen doesn't even mention the old gods or the three-eyed crow here, because it's not about the cultural specifics. It's about enlightenment in the broadest possible sense. But there is one force more powerful than enlightenment, and that's death. As Mira says, the one is over-wrinkled. Literally, she means the mountains, you know, shaped like wrinkles, but she could also be talking about wrinkled skin. Aging until you don't. Enlightenment is rooted not in nature itself, but in the brain and body of the individual perceiving nature. That's as close as I get to a spiritual understanding of why we're here. We're here to bear witness to the earth. So when we die, what happens to that enlightenment? Oh, we have answers to that. So many answers. Culture is nothing but answers to that question. We conceptualize life after death and try to enact it through inherited wisdom, food and faith, clothing and dances, songs and stories. Bran is living after death, in a sense. He rose from the crypts, and his family thinks he's gone. So he embodies this process, a shard of meaning preserved against the fall, a Christian martyr redeemed by grace. All of that feeds so beautifully into what happens next. Bran remembers that this land isn't actually empty. There are people watching them. In another storyline, that would make us paranoid, like the eagle watching John and Corrin Halfhand beyond the wall in the last book. But here, it's the eyes of community on them. So when the weather turns against them, one clansman is there to offer shelter from the storm. The little is so archetypal that he doesn't even get a first name. He doesn't need one. He's a font of wisdom and generosity more than he is a man. He's, he's every kindly old man that ever offered support to any main character. He's an NPC, basically, which might be too stiff if his words weren't so emotional. He offers the travelers food and shelter, which is more than an individual act of support. It's an act of cultural transmission at the heart of the North. Guest right is sacred up here, and we're all in it together when winter comes, or we should be anyway, so John argues as Lord Commander. It's the human connection that prevents us from breaking down completely into isolated individuals, and it's the essence of Stark rule in the North, as the Little says. When there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden could walk the King's Road unmolested, there was a fire and food at every corner. Now, is all of this literally true? Well, not really. We know from what Rue says to Theon in Dance with Dragons that Bolton lands weren't a paradise even before the war came. There were territorial disputes, there were harsh, uncaring lords, and even the best Starks couldn't be everywhere at once protecting everyone. But it was better, and that knowledge fits into the context of myth. Stark rule has lasted long enough to seem like the state of nature itself. It's totemic. It's foundational. It's what undergirds everything else, the mystical land-healing properties of having a Stark in Winterfell. And you feel it most strongly when it's not there. That's when it can take on these legendary proportions. Only in retrospect is the shape of it clear. It's the sorrowful sense of loss that animates these brand chapters. Summer turning to winter as the Game of Thrones turns people into ghosts, as the little says. And then they haunt our dreams. Maybe Jojen's dreams do come true, but the Littles don't. As with the ghost of Highheart and Lem Lemoncloak in the South, when the ghost of Highheart was talking about her prophetic dreams, and, you know, Lem was talking about dreams he's had, about people he's known, and none of them came true. Jojen's true source of hope, that the wolves will come again, is Bran himself, a dream of spring, that from his seed the tree will return. Just as they don't ask his name, the Little doesn't ask theirs. But he clearly knows who they are. He glances at Bran in summer when he mentions that Ramsay's men are looking for wolves, and Walking Dead, people who came back from the dead just like Ramsay appeared to. And there's the bitter irony in that Bran 
can't walk, so he literally can't be the walking dead. But it's also a comparison to the whites, the world of the others, because that's where he's heading. He's leaving the North behind too, just like Ned and Rob did, albeit in the opposite direction. But he keeps the memory of this place alive. He was dead, now he's not, as the little says. And this scene, by the way, is the only real glimpse we get of northern politics and military movements in Storm of Swords. We know here that there are Ironborn in the Wolfswood, which is probably Asha following up on what happened at Winterfell, which she recalls briefly uh, in A Feast for Crows. We also hear that Ramsay holds the King's Road with the Bastard's Boys and is asking after the Starks. So really, like, he's doing a terrible job of keeping this a secret. It's kind of open long before we get to a dance with dragons and all the conspiracies. And the Little may well have told his fellow clansmen about this, the ones who are going to be marching with Stannis in a dance with dragons. See, I take it a step further and suggest that there are hints that this Little is a person of significance in Clan Little. Quote, the clasp that fastened his squirrel skin cloak was gold and bronze and wrought in the shape of a pine cone. The Littles bore pine cones on the white half of their green and white shields. Throughout Song of Ice and Fire, nobles wear the clasp shaped in their house sigil. Jeremy Riker wears one of crossed hammers of the Rikers. Arya observes Willis Manerly wearing a silver and trident clasp of the Manerlys in Harrenhal. In Harrenhal. And when Bran surrenders Winterfell to Theon, Maester Lewin dresses the boy by clasping his cloak with a, quote, wolf's head clasp of silver and jet. Now, that's not definitive evidence, but I think this is some evidence for the man in the cave to be a leader in Clan Little. Among the Littles, there are two Littles who appear on page later in the story, Duncan Little and Morgan Little. Duncan is a Night's Watch Ranger and is up on the wall, but Morgan Little marches with Stannis on Deepwood Mott and then Winterfell, famously yelling that Asha is a cunt during the forest battle outside of Deepwood Mott before apologizing to Asha after the fact. It's interesting that George has to describe this Little's appearance beyond the clasp itself, and I've wondered, and I've wondered whether George R. R. Martin might have gardened his, this Little to be retroactively Morgan Little in A Dance with Dragons. I think it would kind of fit with the dynamic here that this guy is important, and George's like, ah, oh, yes, that's going to be Morgan Little come A Dance with Dragons so we can have some resonance with Stannis' plot in Dance and the Winds of Winter. That's a great example of the gardening and how is the northern plot developed after George abandoned the five years gap. All the kind of stray characters and plot points we see in Clash and Storm kind of come back to the fore. And because he didn't expand on them extensively in these earlier books, he has a lot of room to play with when it comes to the later ones. In this chapter, though, it's, it's less about who this guy is and more about the connection being made. We get the humble aid to those in need that keeps those relationships alive in the first place. The food he leaves behind is greater than any treasure because it demonstrates a resilience against the downfall and depression he was describing. And it encourages Bran to take heart as well. He promises himself he'll pay the Littles back a hundredfold for it when he goes home, a hundred nuts, a hundred berries. And I love this, because it's a, a whimsical, childish expression of a mature concept, capturing Bran in the middle of growing up. Even as his chapters have this storybook, fairy tale tone, they hint at the deeper responsibilities emerging for Bran as he travels. It's his job to do what Ned didn't and what Rob won't. Come home and make the stories real again. Speaking of the stories, what everyone remembers these chapters for is, of course, the tale of the Night of the Laughing Tree. It's often considered in isolation, less about its place in Bran's arc than as a big backstory info dump about Robert's Rebellion and R plus L equals J. George is teasing the reader with crucial information, a big piece of multiple puzzles, and fans of the series use it in their research to come up with theories. Bran is, to an extent, just a vessel for that task here. But in context, I think this story is enriched by Bran's perspective, because it builds on what we've been talking about. What is real, and what is only a dream? Why do we wear all these different masks? What is our responsibility to each other? This scene isn't just giving us a story about the past, it's making an argument about how stories work. 
The Night of the Laughing Tree story is about... The Night of the Laughing Tree story is as much about what doesn't happen in it as what does happen. The truth lingers in the gaps, the interjections, the subtext surrounding the text. It's the Storm of Swords equivalent to the House of the Undying in Clash of Kings. George brings the structure of story to the forefront so we can examine it. In this isolated, symbolic space, with no immediate threat for the characters to respond to, and no other way for them to pass the time, <laughs> Bran and his companions plunge headlong into the heart of narrative itself. It starts with Hodor saying Hodor, just as when he woke Bran up from dreaming in Summer's skin. Even before he holds the door, that word is a bridge between worlds, a password to a change in consciousness. It hides the reality of past and future simultaneously, a loop like the mountains. Names have power. But then again, Bran reminds us, Hodor isn't Hodor's name. It's Walder, the same name as the boys who mocked him at Winterfell. Bran learned that from Old Nan, Keeper of the Flame, source of all the stories. And what happened to her? No one knows. It's a mystery. They didn't see her body at Winterfell. Why would Theon hurt someone like her? Well, Jojen says some people hurt others just because they can. It's how you establish authority, as we'll see in the Night of the Laughing Tree story as well. But Mira reminds us it wasn't Theon who sacked Winterfell, and these characters have no way of knowing it was actually Ramsay. It's a mystery to them, the possibilities of the past shrouded as if by fog, almost as much as the unknowable future. All they can do, Mira says, is remember the stories. Remember not just their content, but their context. What it was like when old Nan told them to you. That's how you keep some part of her alive in your heart. It's the same process of cultural transmission we saw with the mysterious little. It's the same defense against the ruin of entropy. Story is our only recourse against death. Stories are how we bring the dead to life. When we die, whatever else we might become, we become story. This scene is about that process, drawing our attention to the elements of story that lurk just outside the frame. The reads almost make that literal. When Bran asks for stories about knights, his favorite, they tell him that the only knights in the neck are below the water. They're beneath the surface of the story, beneath the conscious layer of your mind. They're the restless dead, the return of the repressed. As Maester Lewin said, there aren't many knights in the north, and so the only knights in the neck are dead ones. As you were saying, it's a clear reference to Tolkien's dead marshes. That's the fertile ground from which this story springs. Bran shivers at the thought of it, but he enjoys the sensation. And I think that that's the appeal of narrative in a nutshell. Mm. A realistic plunge into an artificial scenario. You feel something that you know isn't real, even if it refers to real things. So you can enjoy the sensation on its own terms, exploring how your own mind works. It's also great priming for what's going to happen in Bran's fourth chapter in Storm of Swords when the scary stories become almost real. And also primes readers for what's going to happen in Dance with Dragons when the scary stories do actually become real. We like scary stories because we want to feel the fear in a controlled, safe environment. What we don't want is ghosts coming out of the well at the night fort. And we especially don't want the whites chasing, rising from the ice lake to try and pull Bran and company down. But in a way, this is all a plot glide path for Bran's journey. Scary stories become almost scary realities. They become real horror in the white wilderness outside of Blood Raven's cave. It's all about the transition of Bran from boy to adult, and it works well in the context of Bran's love for scary stories, transitioning to him actually being in, as Jack Sparrow would say, in a ghost story. That's not Jack Sparrow. It's the other guy, right? It's right. It's uh, it's Barbosa who says that right Barbosa, in parts yeah. of the Caribbean. But no, I love that. I think that's a perfect metaphor that 
George's capturing Bran getting older in terms of how he relates to story and the relationship between story and reality. It's that, that ooh feeling that Bran loves in stories, just like he loved it in climbing. Like, you know, Bran never fell before Jamie threw him from the tower. But I think part of what Bran enjoyed about climbing was the possibility of falling, that, that little thrill of danger. Not the real thing, but the sensation of it. And that's what he wants out of this story, too. But instead, Bran is confronted with ambiguity. Right away, we learn that this story takes place in the year of the false spring, a warning to the audience that there are falsities, lies around every corner. Mira says the titular knight might have been a Cranogman like them. Jojen says he might not have been. It's uncertain. No story is ever complete. Jojen's face is dappled with green shadows, a lovely image capturing both life and death, the present tense of nature and the past of memory, the green leaf and the shadow of it. Jojen tries to hit Mira off at the past with this story, and we'll get to why that is later, by saying, hey, Bran's probably heard this one a bunch of times already. But he hasn't. And anyway, Bran says it wouldn't matter. Old Nan says you have to return to favorite stories like they're old friends. It's a vital lesson Bran has learned, and George is dropping the veil to speak to his audience here, telling us that rereading is an enriching process. Old Nan compared stories to people like old friends. They change like they're alive. And I think that's in large part because we are always changing. Your perspective changes. It's a different light. So if you shine it on the same story, it's going to start looking different to you. We look up at the same stars as John will think a couple chapters from now and see such different things. There are different ways to tell a story, different ways to listen to it. Stories are mutable things. And as I always say, there's no such thing as a neutral aesthetic. Story, storyteller, and audience. The borders blur among them all. When Mira describes the protagonist of her story as a curious lad in his native environment, Bran immediately identifies with him, as Mira probably expected. Mira describes the hero's garb as similar to her own, which helps Bran picture the character in his head. The character looks like both Jojen and Mira. And of course he does, because they're the only Cranog men Bran has met, <laughs> and he still doesn't know all that much about their unique culture. The more of them he meets, the more he learns about them, the richer his internal language for them will be the language of metaphor and dreams. But there's another layer to this, because us, the reader, we're also listening to this story, and we can put together more than Bran can. We know enough to gradually figure out that the protagonist of this story is Howland Reed, father to Jojen and Mira, and war buddy of Ned Stark. So it's actually appropriate for him to look like Jojen and Mira in Bran's head, because they probably look like him, their dad. He told them this story, probably, and he probably told it to them this way so they would relate, project themselves into it just as Bran is doing. Mira talks about Howland's gorilla abilities as superpowers. <laughs> he can control trees and the wind because he talked about it that way to entertain them and also to impress a sense of culture on them. And they've, ke they've kept telling it that way, even though they know that's not quite the reality. I, I think it's fun. That's a fun way of putting it, you know, like giving like your parents like superpowers and like giving like kind of like projecting these kind of kind of silly things if you think about it, but, but really, uh, shows how much the, these children love, love their parents. And speaking of parents, you know, it might not all be Howland Reed just telling the Reeds the hmm, story. Interesting. Who might be the other person involved in, the, in this potential story? Well, we'd have to turn to our, our Chloe correspondent, Chloe, of course, to, to do that part. But someone else might have told, someone always tells. And maybe Gianna Reed, potentially, is the person who might have informed a little bit more of the background and context of the story. It might have been both Howland Reed and Gianna Reed, potentially, if she, if she was there, if she was there, if potentially, she was there. possibly. 
Who knows? Chloe, a.k.a. Liza Narber at Girls Gone Can, has written wonderfully about Ashara Dane and the possibility that she actually might be Gianna Reed and still alive in the neck as Howland's wife and Jojen Mira's mother. Definitely check out her, her ongoing essay series on Reddit if you haven't already. But even, even thinking about whether it was Howland who told the story or not just adds to this sense of the complexity and multiplicity of storytelling. All these layers of information, perspective, and time. Story collapses them all together, makes them briefly into the same thing. Bran interrupts the story to ask when they're getting to the tree night part. He's every audience member who just wants the big moments without any of the buildup and context that makes those moments so satisfying. He's like Millhouse watching cartoons going, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? (laughs) Bran only knows that there's a tree night involved to look forward to because they told him so beforehand. If they hadn't told him this is about the night of the laughing tree, he wouldn't be so impatient right now. Storytelling doesn't take place on a blank slate. It's, it's a give and take. It's, it's all about creating, managing, and then subverting expectations. The title of a story, how it's described, is not extraneous. It's part of the storytelling process. After all, just as Bran is impatient to get going, so is Howland inside the story. It's all about stepping outside the world you know and preparing to change. That's also happening to Bran because it happens to everyone. Howland has to get past the twins as Bran has to get through the wall. Howland goes to the Isle of Faces to visit the Green Men, and Bran goes to that cave of Blood Ravens to visit the Children of the Forest. And here the storyteller intervenes. George via Mira keeps the Isle of Faces secret, not ready to divulge what goes on there. Mira immediately moves on, saying, ah, this isn't a story about that. Not yet. <laughs> this is such a key unexplored moment because George is setting up the Isle of Faces and the Green Men to be a big deal in later volumes of A Song of Ice and Fire. In fact, he said as much in a very old web chat from like the early 2000s. George was asked, will we see or hear anything of the Green Men on the Isle of Faces? If not, what are they like? Just a secluded order that's never bothered and has no rule in the events of the Seven Kingdom? And George Armand responded, the Green Men and the Isle of Faces will come up to the fore and layer books. Boy, it's tough to sneak anything by you guys. Later, George stated that the Green Men protect the Isle of Faces. So that begs the question how Howland was able to gain entry onto the island and what its future role will be. Theories abound, but I do think the Isle of Faces will play an important role for Bran's story in particular, kind of the... Bran's second chapter closes with Bran wondering if he's going to play a role with the Green Men. And I do think that lends credence to the idea that it's the Green Men are going to intersect specifically with Bran's story. And one theory, and, and I don't know who came up with it, but I first heard about it from a bookshelf stud from uh, from Reddit, our friend Michael, a.k.a. bookshelf stud, around the end of Game of Thrones season eight, is that the Isle of Faces will be where Bran rules from as king at the end of the series, especially if King's Landing is a smoking ruin. Regardless, I love the ambiguity about the Isle of Faces and the Green Men because it's very possible George hadn't really come up with how this place would be important yet and planned to garden his way to a satisfying story regarding Howland Reed and or Bran Stark's future role with the Green Men and the Isle of Faces. I love the theory about Bran ruling from the Isle of Faces. I think that makes sense. It's like literally at the center of the continent. It's connected to the magical realm so he could keep, maintain the link between that and the political realm. As you say, King's Landing might... Uh, you know, not be a uh, serviceable as as a as a governing spot for the for the foreseeable future. But yeah, and I love how you know Mira saying to Bran that you know this isn't time for that story. That's not what you can hear. That's also kind of George saying it to us. Mira right. and, and Mira holds Bran responsible for that, saying oh, it's your your fault. I'm not telling you about this because you wanted a story about knights. It's a self conscious statement about genre, about how fluid it inherently is. And there's that question of. Does, does the audience even really know what they want until you give it to them? Or is it is something more nebulous, something about what the audience needs? That's always a phrase. You know, the true artist gives the audience what they need, not what they want. Well, how does that really work? And I think you can see George exploring that here. Bran wanted knights, his original self-image, the return to the womb of narrative. He'll come back to Winterfell one day, and when Howland returned from the Isle of Faces back to the world of mortal men, 
he came to another of the great castles of Westeros. Bran recognized it from how it's being described, this its size, this is a huge castle. He goes, ah, it's Harrenhal. And that makes sense to us. We've been there. We know how huge Harrenhal is. We know it's right on that same lake. But Mira only smiles. Was it? Well, yes, it was, but the point is being made. Bran filled in the gaps. He wasn't told it was Harrenhal. He just knew it, and suddenly that's part of the story. Reading or listening to a story isn't a passive process. It's a journey we're taking on the inside. Bran turns the archetype into his... Bran turns the archetype into a specific place. His POV is the link between fiction and reality. It's a two-way street. Harrenhal, as Mira describes it, is nothing like the rotting nightmare we saw in Arya's chapters in the last book. It's a festival of colors and smells and tastes, the sounds of laughter and music, the heart of Westeros. And it's like that because that's how Howland remembers it. And that's how they all kind of remember it, the Roberts Rebellion generation. The false spring, the last gasp of a world we could be happy in, before the war came. There is no neutral way to present it. What came next has transformed this tourney into legend, and there's no way to escape our perspective on events. Yeah, and yet the castle was still ruined from Aegon's conquest, but even when we got Ned's perspective back in his final chapter in A Game of Thrones, it's kind of very similar to the way the reads are presenting, or rather mirrors presenting the story, especially the setting. Here's Ned's memory from Edward 15 from A Game of Thrones. It was the year of the false spring, and he was 18 again, down from the Eyrie to the tourney at Harrenhal. He could see the deep green of the grass and smell the pollen on the wind, warm days and cool nights and the sweet taste of wine. No mention of things like the ruined castle, the scorch marks of dragon fire, the broken towers, etc. that Arya sees. For Ned and Helen, this was the time before sadness fell upon the world. Youth, sex, and song is very similar to what Catelyn observed from her second chapter in A Clash of Kings, of what Renly's men were doing out in uh, out at Bitterbridge. And I think this it's kind of a meaningful moment here that both the Reeds and Ned are at this moment. And the, <laughs> interestingly, when we'll get to this a little bit later on, the Reed story does not go quite as far as Ned's memory does from A Game of Thrones Editor 15. And I think that's ultimately what colors and divides their stories in, the, in this context. You can see George making this kind of uh, pl- uh, this this playful attitude clear when he writes about the history, when he writes about the Targaryen history, and is talking about what different writers have said about it, what the Maesters have said, what Mushroom has said, trying to show us how every perspective is just a, kind of a piece of this puzzle, and there's there's no real way to access the objective truth of what happened, and that's true because the reader's perspective intervenes as well as the storytellers. Bran suddenly suspects from all this romantic imagery that this is turning into a love story. It's again, it's again, it's a joke about genre expectations. It's just like the kid in The Princess Bride when he rolls his eyes at his grandpa and goes, is this a kissing book? <laughs> Bran is squeamish about this kind of story because he lacks the internal language to make sense of it. He can access the emotions of stories of knightly virtue, but the chivalric romance toward which that virtue is usually put, duh, he's less into that. Bran can conceptualize a fair maid, but takes it no further. He's in an in-between position, which is why he says that uh, Hodor is the one who hates kissy stuff. Don't tell this story. Hodor doesn't like that. And that's fascinating. Bran is uncomfortable, but he doesn't want to admit it. Because before long, he won't be uncomfortable with it. For the moment, Bran likes the stories where knights fight monsters. But part of growing up is developing critical thinking. And in that case, it means recognizing, and in this case, it means recognizing, as Mira says, that the knights can be the monsters. That's a key line in the series, resonating back to Jorah's line in the first book about the small folk never being left in peace, and forward to Thoros saying that some knights are dark and full of terror, and that the war made monsters of them all. Here the concept is boiled down to its simplest form, appropriate for the context of a children's story. Sometimes the knights are the monsters. What if that which was supposed to be your guardian against the dangerous other 
was in fact the danger? What if there was a world in which we got rid of the White Walkers and the dragons and the Shadowbinders and all of it, and it still didn't save us from ourselves? I think it's brilliant how George links Bran's squeamishness about sex and romance to his naivete about knights and monsters. He seems to be suggesting they're flip sides of the same coin. That if you can't handle the reality of people loving and fucking each other, you probably can't handle the reality of people hating and fucking each other over. <laughs> That's so true. And I think, you know, uh, I mean, you, you alluded to it, but I think it's really well about, uh, you know, how like if we got rid of all of like the evil magic in the world. Like, would we still like save ourselves from save each other from ourselves? Well, I think Game of Thrones season eight and I think A Dream of Spring will prove that is quite the case that they will not be able to save each other from themselves. But I think, you know, it's it's. I hate to use this phrase, but it's almost like a teachable moment for Bran. Like, I just feel my skin crawling just saying that phrase. But it's the reads gently challenging Bran's perspective of knights equals good. And it's much less dire challenging of Bran's idealism than what Jamie experienced in service to Aerys II. But I think mm-hmm. Jamie resonates with what the reads are telling Bran here. Knights see and do worse every time they go to war, as Jamie tells Brienne. At the same time, the brilliance here is that this is also the reads' kind of internal bias as reads coming to the fore. There are no Cranach knights. They might hold a tiller better than a lance, as Mira says. But I think it's an institutionalized distaste for knights. And why would they be opposed to knighthood? The story itself kind of tells the story so to speak but it's because their mortal enemies the phrase are a part of the are a part of the noble culture of knighthood Frey knights and chivalry were enemies of the reeds Frey lances and swords killed Cranachmen in the past as part of their eternal struggle and Frey knights lances and swords and fires will be the ones that will carry out the red wedding to come yeah i love that that realization that this story exists to kind of transmit that cultural awareness among Cranachmen. that the knights can be mm-hmm. the monsters the knights can be our enemies and so it's you just, you just think about Mira's parents telling this to her and kind of that's why, and then why Mira is telling this to Bran and why George is telling this, telling it to us. All these, all these kind of motivations in these layers of story. And Bran has to internalize all of it. Mira mm. puts the point of it, the message, plainly to him, as Howland probably put it to her and as George is putting it to us. Howland was doing nothing wrong. He was just enjoying this nice spring day when three squires kicked his ass because they felt that this nice spring day was their property and he had no right there. Back we go to the start of the story. Why was Will at the wall again? Because he was caught in the Malister's own woods skinning one of the Malister's own bucks. He wasn't doing any harm to anybody. He was just trying to eat, maybe make a little profit. But the Malister's own that turf, so he can't be there. Same thing for Howland at Harrenhal. Remember, Howland as a Cranog man is, is a little shorter in stature than most people around, mm-hmm. so I think he stands in for the literal small folk getting kicked around. Like the Walders, mock- like the Walders mocking Hodor in Clash of Kings, despite him being a Walder too. And actually, Bran compares the two situations, thinking about what it was like when Hodor was getting tormented. Again, showing how stories move from general to particular and back, as we make sense of them. Bran thinks, oh, that's, that's like the Walders I know. Maybe they were Walder phrased just like them. So who saves our hero? A wolf, like the wolves who will come again. A wolf on two legs, though, Mira clarifies. Stories blur people into symbols of their essence. Just like Bran became Summer, his aunt becomes a wolf. Because this is Lyanna, of course. As the wild wolf is big brother Brandon, the quiet wolf is middle brother Ned, and the pup is Benjen. Naming them this way adds to the, the fanciful atmosphere of this story. Everyone gets turned into an animal like it's a fable, like it's something about the ant and the grasshopper or the scorpion and the toad. That's so well said. I mean, the symbols are part of what makes this story so powerful because this is a children's story, and yet it has adult ramifications and meanings. It's kind of an adventure story at heart, a something a, a kid would like. But it's also an adult story with heavy adult themes. Basically, maybe this is YA fiction, as I was saying in my introductory statements, at its best, or maybe that's kind of too trite. 
What I think the Night of the Laughing Tree track strongest with is, and I know this will be a weird comparison, but the C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And mm-hmm. just to cl- throw clear for a moment, <clears throat> Night of the Laughing Tree is not an allegory the way that Lewis's work was for the for Christianity. The Lion Lord is not Jesus the way that Aslan was for Pete's sake. And that's Tywin, and he's no Jesus. I think, <laughs> we're coming, obviously. But I think they both tell profound stories using symbols and animals slash nature stand-ins. And they're both told in ways that children and adults can enjoy for different reasons. Brain can simply enjoy the story for the tourney and the castles, the jousting, the knights, the squires, but adults can see the subtext and see how the story is speaking to something more profound and more more sad, as Mira completes, than what Bran sees. But to make the story palatable to both children and adults, it's told, and written by George and Clive Staples, to have a layer of meaning. And yet even in having a deep, deeper meaning, it's still relatively simple. And that's my meta about like the Night of the Laughing Tree story is that it's fairly easy to decipher like what is happening here and who the characters are because it's intentionally told that way so that both in the context of a story in a context of a way that a story that Bran would easily understand as a child that we as kind of like the simple basic readers that I was you know many years ago all the time if I'm being honest can understand and be able to interpret well even in my in my in my older adult years exactly it's it's that's what I think we're getting at here is that there is no isolated platonic ideal of a story it's always going to depend on who's yes. telling it and who's listening that's that's always going to impact what what the story actually is and everything we're seeing here fits into the imagery of brand's chapters specifically he was just mourning his pack both as summer and himself and now we see the previous generation of starks presented as a wolf pack all together one last time that they go unnamed forces us to fill in the gaps recognize who they are to go oh that's liana that's brandon that's ned just as with the other characters at Heron Hall. They're described in terms of their sigils and described in terms of archetypes of animals. And some of them we can recognize our first time through the books, right? The dragon prince is Rhaegar. We already know that. The storm lord is Robert. We might recognize the maid with the purple eyes as a Shardane because she's come up a couple times. <laughs> Others only become clear on reread. We haven't met the red viper Oberyn Martell yet, so we're probably unlikely to pick that one out. Nor have we met the lord of Griffins, John Connington. And we only know from A Dance with Dragons that the white sword dancing with Ashara was specifically Barristan. All the specifics fade, distorted by both narrative and time. We leave behind traces of who we were. A blurry image, a flash of color, a line from a song. And this is how they look back at themselves, too. Barristan looks at his face in a reflection in A Dance with Dragons and wonders when he got so old. When did he stop being this guy, a character in a story, as ageless as song itself? Story is all shadow puppets, but so is politics, and so is memory. We never get back to the thing in itself. We just put it into a different context. Liana, in the moment, is the perfect Stark. She's heroic, saving Howland, upholding her duty, seeing that she's doing it because he's her father's man. She owes him that. She's charismatic, too. So much so that she basically bullies Howland into joining them at the feast. She's impossible to refuse, as the story says. Lyanna is martial, but also romantic, crying at Rhaegar's sad song. Until Benjen teases her, at which point she overturns her wine glass on him. (laughs) She inspires Howland, gives him the hope that he can avenge himself on his tormentors. At this point, Jojen interrupts again to wonder why Bran hasn't heard this story. And again, we'll get to that in a minute. But his interruption allows Bran to assume continuity... Like when Jojen broke into the story, Howland was considering getting his vengeance. And then the Knight of the Laughing Tree shows up. So of course, Bran says, the little Cranog man must be the knight. Two plus two equals four. 
I think that's such a brilliant touch about Bran thinking that the Krangman must be the Knight of the Laughing Tree because we love stories that twist the expected norm. We love our scrappy little champions standing up to the big and the strong and the bad. And we love vengeance, too. We love the good guys coming back Maximus style to have their vengeance in this life or the next. That's a tried and true method of interrogating traditional story tropes. But what George does here is a little different. I guess we are going to talk more about the identity of the knight at the end of the podcast. But George layers the event with further interrogation of the trope. It's not simply that Bran is guessing the identity of the mystery knight here incorrectly. It's that there's a deeper layer of meaning behind who the actual knight of the knight of the laughing tree is. It's not a story about vengeance. It's not a story about the little Krannic men standing up to the big and the strong. It's something more than that. And I think that makes this story so much so very special in the in this series. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's not just that Bran is passively listening to the story and isn't making any connections. It's that he's making incorrect connections and he's doing that mm. because of things he already knows about. And I think George is trying to say is that's how we read stories too. We're being shown how the way a story is told and interpreted changes its meaning. It's all signs and symbols, like the sigils being used to communicate who these people are instead of names. And I love that George describes Bran nodding sagely in this moment as he goes, ah, I understand what's going on here. He's a little kid pretending to be a wise old sage. The stories he knows have prepared him for this moment, because he knows all about mystery nights, but he doesn't necessarily know how to solve the mystery. His beloved stories have deceived him, as they did about the nature of knights, which is why Mira had to tell him sometimes the knights are the monsters. The tropes are lying to you, and the first tri- and the first step toward wisdom is admitting your ignorance. The mystery knight joins the joust, defeats those knights whose squires thrashed Howland, and the only ransom they ask is teach your squires honor. It's the essence of storybook heroism, all the abstract values of chivalry embodied. For a minute, the world worked like it was supposed to. The downtrodden lifted up, their tormentors brought to justice. Howland's prayer to the old gods has been answered, and so the knight vanished like a spirit out of legend. Their job done. What a happy ending. That's how Bran takes it anyway. He says, eh, it was a good story. B+. Should have been more violent, though. And the mystery knight should have won the tourney and declared the wolf maid the queen of love and beauty. And this is just perfect. It clarifies Bran's role as the in-universe young reader on the cusp of awareness. He knows what he likes, but not what it means. All Bran can think of is the terms of victory. The catharsis without any complication or any self-examination. It's a power fantasy, and that's all. He's casually bloodthirsty like many kids when he says, oh, yeah, we sh- you know, Knight of Laughing Tree should have killed those knights. He's like young Mega Terrell who was talking to Sansa about how she wants a betrothed willing to kill a hundred men for her love. Bran also wants everything in the story to be neat and complete. The knight has to be the Cranog man, and if so, he has to have a crush on the wolfmaid. Those are the rules. Even though Bran doesn't like the kissing books, he knows the structure of them. And this is George making the case for a critical and thoughtful approach to stories. If you just treat them as wish fulfillment, if you assume going in you already know what's going to happen, you'll miss the whole point. Lyanna was the queen of love and beauty. But as Mira says, that's a sadder story. The true story, shorn of all the dazzling fairy tale imagery. That's the sad song Rhaegar was singing, the one that made Lyanna cry. And just like how Bran shivered pleasurably at the thought of dead knights under the water, Lyanna enjoyed the song, despite it making her cry. Because it made her cry. Because it made her feel things. And that's what we want. Rhaegar, of course, is the one who named her the Queen of Love and Beauty. He's the one who stole her away, leaving her pregnant with Jon Snow. Meanwhile, the king who was hunting the Knight of the Laughing Tree next took out his anger on the wild wolf Brandon and his father Rickard. Then comes the war and the murder of Rhaegar's other children. And finally, Lyanna's death in childbirth. 
Promise me, Ned. Keep it secret. And that is why Bran doesn't know this story, while the Reeds know it by heart. With Howland as the protagonist, and maybe the storyteller, with a guileless little brat as the audience, this is a feel-good story about finding friends and overcoming obstacles. But if you look at this as a story about the Starks, it's the beginning of the end. Ned doesn't tell it because it might give away the secret of John, and also because it's just too painful. Lyanna was beautiful, willful, and then dead before her time. Jamie has a different story about Hall. We've already started hearing it. And I'm sure if we talked to Oberyn and John Connington, they would each have their own stories to tell. And none of those stories are true and none of them are false. They're just each their own. I think it'll be fun, hopefully, in the Winds of Winter that we get John Connington's perspective on the journey of Harrenhal. I think that might be another perspective that we might see, which would be awesome. And I hope that's something that George does in the book. And I think you're so right that this is painful for Ned because what Mira leaves out of the story, we get Ned picking up on it back in his fever dream from his last chapter in the Game of Thrones. Ned remembered the moment when all the smiles died, when Prince Rhaegar Targaryen urged his horse past his own wife, the Dornish Prince Elia Martell, to lay the queen to lay the queen of beauty's laurel in Lyanna's lap. He could see it still, a crown of winter roses blue as frost. For Ned, the fever dream of Harrenhal started with youth, with love, with wine and warm wind in the air. It ends with Rhaegar wrenching the world of youth away by doing what seems like an enormous act of chivalric love, placing the laurel's crown on Lyanna's lap. Though Rhaegar was not the missionary, come on people, do you guys actually come up with these theories on your own? This connects to what Bran remembered earlier in the chapter about the history of the Mystery Knights. The Dragon Knight once won attorney as the, ter- the Dragon Knight once won attorney as the Knight of Tears, so he could name his sister the Queen of Love and Beauty in place of the King's mistress. Aemon the Dragon Knight prevented King Aegon the Fourth Targaryen's mistress to be named Queen of Love and Beauty, but Rhaegar won the tourney to crown a woman as his mistress. Yes, that is a one-sided interpretation of what occurred. And I think we'll unpack that there's more to the story of Rhaegar trying to find the Knight of the Laughing Tree and him winning the tourney at the end of this at the end of this episode. But it's the reason why Ned found the story impossible to tell to his children. The tourney of Harrenhal was the moment when he lost almost all of his family, his father, his older brother, his sister. Almost everyone that Ned ever loved in his entire life died. Well, didn't die at Harrenhal, but you can trace a lot of their actual eventual falls to events that happened at Harrenhal. It's hard for Ned. And yeah, he is kind of like a sad, tragic figure in this. He's the quiet wolf in this section of the story in this section of, of A Song of Ice and Fire. And so you can even see the elements of who Ned Stark was before he was the Ned Stark that we came to know and love in A Game of Thrones. And yet being that Ned Stark character, he can never tell these stories about about the Night of the Laughing Tree. He can only whisper stuff about Arthur Dane to Bran Stark as we found out in, in A Clash of Kings. He was ultimately the quiet wolf because life and life in the world around him made him quiet, made him sad. It made him not really really wanted to talk about the past that just seemed so bitter and poignant to him, probably, and even to the, even to the end of his his days, as the, when his last chapters, him remembering his his sister and remembering what happened to her. It was in the Bran chapter where the reads were introduced that Bran thought back to that moment when Ned was telling him about Arthur Dane, and then he thinks to himself that his father got sad and stopped telling the story because I guarantee Ned was thinking about this, about yes. how happy he was in the moment and how sad he is in retrospect. That's the big thesis statement, I think, of the Night of the Laughing Tree story, is that stories change as you change. They're chameleons that crack you open. Bran has just been told the keystone story of a generation, one that hints at why everything turned out the way it did, and the secrets that define his family. But he doesn't realize any of that because of how it was told to him, and because of how he approaches it as a reader. 
As the chapter ends, Bran projects himself into the story, like he projected himself into summer. I could visit the Isle of Faces. I could be a knight. He did. It's so bittersweet because Bran is doing exactly what we tell kids to do with stories. Let them in. Think of them as part of you and you as part of them. Be inspired. Dream and then live your dreams. But while Bran doesn't know the truth, we do on reread. He has misread the story, including his own, and his dreams are not going to come true. But he will fly. He'll never walk again, but he will fly. So even as the old stories die and Bran thinks he can live with them, but can't, he will come up with his own story. Mm -hmm. And who has a better story than Bran Stark? <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, man. That was so. I think that's... I, I, I'm sorry. I usually we'll say this after these episodes that are done, and maybe I'll cut this out of the episode itself, but... I think that is, sir, that is the definitive treatment of the Night of the Laughing Tree story. So Hell yeah. hats off to you, man. Well, hats That's off so to us. Hats off to us both. Everyone's hats off. Everyone. Hats off. All around. All around. Hats off. All right. So, shifting over to foreshadowing groundwork for Storm of Swords Brand 1 and 2. Hodor shouts Hodor and then uh, runs to the door when Mira returns, which is another allusion to Hodor being hold the door, which, again, is one of those really cool things that we can see now in retrospect that George was setting this up. We had several references to Hodor being hold the door in A Clash of Kings. George continues that here in A Storm of Swords. It's interesting to come back and realize how that's packed in so frequently. Even Hodor being the one who brings Bran back from his wolf dream speaks to Hodor as like this this threshold figure, someone who's on, you know, guarding the, the literal door, but also a metaphorical passway, passageway between those two versions of Bran. So, you know, as, as we've said before, I can see why George is probably really crestfallen that he wasn't able to get the Winds of Winter yes. out before season six, because I would have loved to have read that first, and I'm sure he would have wanted to be the one to break it to us. So that's too bad. Yeah, but thankfully he says it's going to be so much more different in, in this be a much different context. We'll find out about it in the Winds of Winter, so I'm excited to see that. Amira calls Bran your grace once in Bran's first chapter for shouting his future role as probable endgame king of Westeros. Again, I think like the, the Sabri kits are sometimes like you could call like princes like your graces and stuff like sure. that. But I think specifically this is intended to foreshadow Bran's future role as 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 king of Westeros. Uh, even if Mira in this in this moment is referring to him likely in the context of being Rob's heir as 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 the uh, as Rob does not have any children and of course will not have any children ultimately I think that's probably what's happening here so it kind of has a double meaning agreed agreed you know this is they they use a lot of teasing little titles for Bran in part just kind of making fun of him Mira and Jojen do but I think I think as we talked about in Clash of Kings I think you can see George working through the idea of Bran as an endgame monarch even early on and I think that's that's part of it for sure. Mm -hmm. So the, the clansmen who get brought up in this chapter, Bran mentions a, a few of their family names, and then we meet the little. Uh, they're going to return in force to the narrative in A Dance with Dragons. And I remember some people saying at the time that it seemed like the clansmen kind of came out of nowhere and were just kind of being invented so Stannis could have an army. And maybe that particular plot point was invented as George wrote Dance. But you can see already in this chapter that George is thinking through the clansmen, thinking through who some of their families are and how they fit into the North as a whole. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, like... Um... I do think there is a little bit of George being like, oh, God, how, who is left in the north right. that, like, stands can That's get very true. For? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, uh, let me read A Storm of Swords. Okay, who's going in the north? Okay, Bran. Okay, Bran's there. And Bran recounts <laughs> the, the littles, the mountain clans, the wolves, and all those. Perfect. Gum. Print it. Um, it. It is interesting, though, that shortly after he abandons the five-year gap, some of the first chapters he did write were John chapters, I think. And, like, those first couple John chapters where John is explaining, like, the, the clansmen to Stannis were a part of the original uh, text of from a feast for crows before George cut it to to a dance of dragons. So they are. It was pretty early. At, it was pretty shortly after he finished Storm of Swords that he started to zero in on the clansmen as being the the dudes who were gonna 
be a part of Stannis's army. And, you know, the clansmen, they call uh, Ned Stark the Ned in The Dance with Dragons, which I think is just lovely, you know, when they call it the Ned and the Ned's girl and stuff like that, and they're referring to Arya. Just like Bran talks about, like, the, the clansmen saying, like, the wool for the leader of the clan is supposed to, like, a lord or something like that. So the Sabriah kid is just a little bit different here. And what the, the, the it's, it's, I just love it because it's, like, the language aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Like, Bran's, like, in, in, interpreting the wool as being lord in the same way that the clansmen are interpreting the Ned, are, are interpreting Lord Ned Stark as being, like, the Ned, if that makes sense. It's a gesture of extreme affection, not only because they're using their own terminology, but because they don't call him the Stark which is what would make sense if they're following their own mm. family pattern. They're calling him the Ned, his first name, which is just so much more kind of just friendly and personable. And you get the sense, although we don't yeah. have many details about this, that you know Ned treated with him and them individually. So maybe they specifically have affection for him even more than, than the Starks as a whole, although they do love them as, as the little makes clear. And yeah, I like I like the the clansmen and their cultural specifics because it emphasizes that you know the Starks weren't the first people ever in the North. And that there were there were people in the north who have older traditions even than them that the Starks have kind of integrated and taken part in, and I think that makes the, the North feel kind of more more rich and culturally diverse, which is a lot of what a dance with dragons is about. And uh, speaking of a dance with dragons, Bran thinks in these chapters about how he did not see the corpses of the young Walder squires at Winterfell, and that's George just reminding you about them. He does it again later in the book when Lothar Frey tells Robin Catelyn he got a letter from the squires about the state of play in the North, until finally they show back up in person in a dance with dragons. And so those those little mentions of tertiary characters like that are good, just so the reader, especially the casual reader, doesn't get to dance and just wonder who who the hell these two boys are. It's George <laughs> is trying to keep them in our minds. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a little bit like, where do these guys come from again when you pick up with them in A Dance with Dragons? But then the rereaders, such as us, go back and we were able to look at Clash and Storm and be like, oh yeah, George is laying the trail for them reappearing later in the narrative, which I think is, is good. It's a, it's, it's, it's a good way of writing, and I think it's also a good way of gardening like these characters of kind of leaving these seeds planted. So maybe they could sprout up in the future. Maybe they could disappear again. I mean, maybe those characters who are like in Ramsey, hopefully they, they get out of the dread for at some point in time in the future, all the Winterfell uh, small folk who get led away by, by Ramsey. But they might not show up again. George might not have a story necessarily for them. And that's kind of the way that George did it for the Walters who do show up in a big way. And a little way in, in, at the, in, in Advance of Dragons. <laughs> Absolutely. One more bit for foreshadowing and groundwork. Uh, when Mira is asking quite sensibly to Jojen, you know, how are we going to find the three-eyed crow and all that that wasteland? And Jojen says, oh, maybe he'll find us. And that does turn turn out to be what happens in Storm of Swords. The three-eyed crow does not come himself, but sends cold hands looking for them, picking up Sam and Gilly on the way. So that's just a little little clue from the author about how, this, how they're actually going to get to the three-eyed crow. Yeah, Cold Hands is such a fascinating character in this story because he seems to have multiple missions, right? I mean, we talked about him potentially being the guy who planted the the Dragonglass stuff mm-hmm. back in in at the Fist of the First Men, and we had that that great debate. I do listen to that. I think I think that that was a really good good debate, just the best there is. But uh, but I but I then he's he's sent if he's if he's not there, he is eventually sent to to rescue Sam from from the village in in the in two Sam chapters from now, and then he's then gone down to. The wall takes Sam down there and then picks up Bran at the, at the night ford and takes him north. Um, it's really interesting. I I, I would love. I, I, we, at some point, we do have to do a cold hands like patron. Sure, or something that's like a good that. idea. Because I, because I think I just think like he's such an interesting character. Like, is he the embodiment of Bloodraven? Like, is he just like some random like, sure. reanimated corpse? Is he some person of significance? I mean, well, we don't know much about him, but yeah, he is sent by Bloodraven to pick up Bran because Bloodraven is of course connected to the Weirwood Throne and is you know over. How old is he at this point? 130, 140 years Something old like by that, the time yeah. he gets. Yeah, so he's, he's pretty old at this point and can't really move around uh, so well these days, if, even if he wasn't attached to the Weirwood roots. 
Yep. So that yeah, that's that's where Brand's story gets even more mystical than it already has. That's going to be wild when he shows up. And uh, Girls Gone Canada are just doing that chapter this week. Sam three, oh, Sam three and Storm of Swords when when Cold Hands is first introduced in that village beyond the wall. <laughs> so moving into our theory and discussion portion of the episode, obviously there's one question to ask, but thankfully it is a very quick answer. Who was the Knight of the Laughing Tree? Or really, we're told in this chapter it was the little Cranogman. Brand says so, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, like like I was saying earlier, I, I think the the idea embedded, I think, is a beautiful idea, and that we, you know, Brand's looking at the Knight of the Laughing Tree story as, of course, the Cranogman has to come up and like, you know, punch his way out of this thing, and and in order to like gain. Um, gain vengeance on on the phrase who who had wronged him the squad the three squires who had wronged him but George embeds a deeper meaning because I, it's it's very obviously you know Lyanna Stark who is it was the night of the laughing tree uh, Lyanna is is a really interesting character and this is among the most I don't know if it's the most poignant or if it's just like the most amount of time that we get Lyanna mm-hmm. on on page uh, in, in a song of ice and fire because she only appears in fleeting mentions but. There, are, there is some evidence that Lyanna is the Knight of the Laughing Tree uh, in, the, in the story itself. We do learn later from Bruce Bolton that she was a good writer and that his, his son was, was, was just a little bit better than, than Lyanna as, as a point of pride. Um, since the girl was like made for horses and stuff like that. So she's obviously a good writer. Uh, she is practicing sword fighting with, uh, it, it appears to be Benjamin Stark uh-huh. in Bran's dream from his third chapter in, in A Dance with Dragons. So she does have some skill at arms. She is a good writer. And of course, she is fighting squires as well, who are not might, or rather, she's fighting the knights themselves, and she ends up unhorsing them. Um, I think, I think the lion as the knight of the laughing tree, I think, makes more than just like the plot sense. I think it makes thematic and character sense for her because ultimately, why does Rhaegar seek her out? Why mm-hmm. does he fall in love with her? And I think the reason why is that she demonstrated something to him. That made him feel like that either she was the prophesied person who's going to birth like the last head of the dragon or just was generally like more than than what he was generally what what he wanted in in, in someone. Now, the story, the part of the story that that cuts out here is that we do we don't learn. We learn that Rhaegar goes and looks for the night, the laughing tree and no one finds her. Of course, they only find her shield. And I think the the the. The theory is that what happened is that Rhaegar went out and actually did find the Night of the Laughing Tree, found it was Lyanna, and that's when he fell in love with her, and then he, of course, named her Queen of Love and Beauty and placed the Laurel's crown on her lap, as uh, as Ned remembered uh, from A Game of Thrones, Edder 15. But, yeah, it, it's 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 very clear very clear to me it's Lyanna. There are some bad, ugly theories out there that it was Ned Stark or Rhaegar Targaryen or even, like, Benjen Stark, who was, like, who who are, who are the, those people there. But I, I don't find a lot of resonance for... Um, for any of, the, of those characters, thematic plot or especially character, for any of those characters being um, that being the mystery knight and the knight of the laughing tree, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I think that there was a compelling reason why Lyanna did step in and step up for Helen Reed, given that she did witness those three squires beating Helen Reed um, in the early part of the story. But yeah, so it's it's very clearly Lana Stark. Is there any way that it could not be Lana Stark? That's what I ask you, sir. No, I, I totally agree. I love how George sets this up, where right before Jojen interrupts and right before the knight is introduced, you have the Howland thinking to himself, oh, I wish I could get my revenge, but I'm just too small. I don't know anything about jousting. So Bran assumes like that's set up for the reversal when Howland can, in fact, joust. But really, it's actually George kind of spelling it out for you. This is why it's not Howland, because he literally hmm. can't do this. Whereas, because jousting is... um. I forget if it's Loris or Jamie who says jousting is three-quarters horsemanship. 
So it's really mm. it's 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 about knowing how to ride, and as you were saying, it's well established that Liana can do that. So all the theories that have oh Liana wouldn't possibly be strong enough to win a joust. Well, really, jousting is not a, just about like you know how much you can lift. It's about about you know balance <laughs> and elegance and horsemanship, and you know there there are things that that I think a, a woman, even a young woman like Liana, would be able to do. I think it's within the, within the bounds of possibility. But more important, like yeah, is is the the thematic and character stuff that we are, we set up Liana beating up those squires for Howland. It makes total sense. She would take up arms. Uh, against the, uh, the the knights themselves, it makes sense that she would want to stay hidden for her own reasons because it's it's not permitted for for women to joust, and she would bring shame on the family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as you were saying, then it lines up so well with Rhaegar and what Rhaegar does next. That Rhaegar was the one sent to sent to find the knight and reported back, "Oh, I found only their shield." Well, in all likelihood, that's a lie, and he actually <laughs> met Lyanna. And I agree. I think that that probably impressed him and struck him. Oh, this this young woman who was able to joust and you know, uh, cover up her identity and, and demand only that they teach their squires honor. What an, what an impressive person. And that's how that kind of relationship began. And that's what ultimately led him to to give her the, the the crown of love and beauty. And how bittersweet that is. It's like, that's Rhaegar going, Liana, you really won this tourney. You should be the winner of this tourney. But I can't honor you with the champion's laurels. You can't officially win. So here's as close as we can get to what <laughs> should be happening here. And how how perfect it is that Bran thinks the end of the story should have been the mystery knight crowning the wolf maid, the queen of love and beauty, when the wolf maid was the mystery knight. Those are actually the same person <laughs> that Bran is just assuming are two people. And that's that shows you again, like that that Bran, while well, he he knows enough from stories to start navigating the pathways, it's actually because of those previous stories that he fails to analyze this properly. And he just assumes this is gonna be like everything I've heard before, and there's not gonna be any twist to it. And then he ends. He ends up missing the truth, which is which is that it was Liana, and that that's that's so perfect because it's it's like the reason those older knights wouldn't have allowed Liana to joust. One of the reasons why I think is because there were no women jousting in the stories they were told. Maybe if those guys yeah. were told stories as a kid about women warriors, they'd be a little more open to it. Maybe not. There's there's way more to a culture than just the stories you tell kids. But I think it's it's that automatic assumption that Liana was kind of running up against, and I think it's and it you know it fits the overall aura of, of mystery and hidden tragedy that involves these characters that we don't get the full truth about who was behind the the armor, but we're pretty sure it's Liana. In the same way that we don't have confirmation that Jon Snow's parents are Rhaegar and Liana, but we know it. So it's it's, <laughs> it's it's you know George is not just I think setting up these plot twists and reveals he's thinking about what it means to withhold information from someone what it means to to know something about a story and be wrong and he's trying to show us that process through the night of the laughing tree and through and through brand's perspective he's like saying this is this is how we approach stories this is how we do it wrong and this is the kind of deeper emotions that we access if we think about it just a little bit i think you're right and i think like the the deeper emotions is what underpins like a lot of like our the love for the, that this story earns, and mm-hmm. I think rightfully earns, that we, we love this story, and this story stays with with folks. And I mean, you know, people have people come with all, with all sorts of theories about you know the the night of the laughing tree and, and stuff from the story itself, and even some of the tertiary aspects of it, um, especially some of the stuff where where the Krennicman notices um, uh, who's notices the Shardane, and and that being like a, a foundation for like the potential for them being. Together and, and Ashara and and uh, and Howland Reed getting together and hopefully Ashara Dane living on. There's there's kind of a a fun addendum to this 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 idea about the night of the laughing tree, which was came out in a, a series of posts in 2016 on Reddit called the called the Heron Hall conspiracy, which has it that Eris the Second Targaryen learned that Lana was mm-hmm. the night of the laughing tree, 
And what ended up happening is that Rhaegar found out that his father knew and his father was sending men up and Rhaegar came and intercepted Lyanna before um, before Aerys II could get to her since he had named her, uh, named the Laughing Tree, no friend of his, um, as, as was reported in the, in the story. And that's, he was able to like, you know, kind of shield her away and bring her down to, to the Tower of Joy. And then I think that adds another layer of tragedy to it that Rhaegar was attempting to rescue and save Lyanna Stark uh, because she was identified as the Knight of the Laughing Tree by Aerys II. And then that ends up leading to the ultimate downfall of everything with Aerys, with Brandon and Rickard going, or Brandon Stark going down to, to King's Landing to make the Rhaegar come out and die. And then Rickard coming in and trying to rescue his, his son um, from, from Aerys II Targaryen and then leading ultimately to Robert's Rebellion and really the... Uh, we're ultimately, you know, Ned talks about all the smiles dying at Harren Hall um, when when the crown was placed in, on Lyanna's lap, but the but the the smiles really and truly died at Robert's Rebellion as all of these characters and most of these characters in the story end up dead. All of the the White Knights, you know, the Wild Wolf, the father of the Wild Wolf, and Lyanna herself are all, all ultimately dying. So the Night of the Laughing Tree lives on in stories even as she herself dies, but uh, she lives on in in some sense in both the uh, the memories that. That Ned has of her, and in what Bran sees, in and his Werewood visions in *A Dance with Dragons*, and also ultimately, I think in, in in characters that we see throughout this this series as well, from Arya and Sansa and others as well. And I think that, like you were saying earlier in the episode, like our, the stories live on even the person dies. But I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords Brand 1 and 2. As always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where our patrons get early access to our episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and a lot of more benefits beside. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at poor quentin on twitter we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on patreon red relu himself who has renounced his allegiance to the squishers lady of a thousand words septon Maribald, the shoeless sage sister winter lady of the wolfswood nessie the elusive warden of the neck defender of the north and keeper of secrets sir thomas the raven knight lord of blackwood sir way of course matt warden of the sanguine shore lord sam k wisdom benjicott alchemist of sets and quanta mage of the arts of bull and de morgan Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles. Random, fierce protector of cripples, bastards, and broken things. Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye. Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society. Lady of Rainy Afternoons. Lady Can of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine. Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, who's Rod and Ringer of Tinfoil. Aaron Damper, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye. And Ned M. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Yeah, thank you folks so much for your support. It means the world to us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Davos 3, and I think in which I think we can all agree that Lord Alistair Florent is no traitor. Or so he says so loudly. I am the hand of the king. How could I be a traitor? Just like uh, <laughs> Nixon saying, if the president does it, that means it's not illegal. 
That's uh, that's Alistair Florent for you. <laughs> and yes, as I've said before, Davos is my favorite POV storyline in the Storm of Swords. So I'm I'm raring with excitement to get to this chapter. It's going to be wonderful. Cannot wait to do that with you, sir. Davos is actually excellent. As much as I joke that he is only second rate, he's not second rate. Second best is what I say. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords Davos 